shit, shit, shit show. It's a fucking shit show. Welcome shit back show. to Shit Show Saturday. We have quite a treat. We have, I'm gonna, here's here's my southern accent coming through. We have Francis Faye here today. Shit show, Francis Faye. Welcome. You did that so good. I was born in Birmingham, okay? Where'd your accent go? I, I left when I was two. So. Oh. I practice my accent daily. It's Keep it. I, yeah, I love a southern accent. Something that I don't want to let go of. And it's actually something I've probably embraced more in the last few years than I had in the previous 15. You have a very sophisticated sounding one, I must say. Oh, overeducated. My people talk with sort of a twang. Mm-hmm. So yeah. now you're in Tacoma, Washington. I am. How long have you been there? Uh, this is my 10th year here in oh, wow. Tacoma. Yeah. A long time. Okay, so song. What do you want to play when you walk into a room? Oh, God. I didn't know what questions you were going to ask. Um, You'll find out. Okay, the one that I want to play today, I, I would choose this differently every day. So um, it depends on when I'm walking in the room. But here's the one that I would choose today. I have to look it up, though, because I don't have it memorized. A good friend of mine made me a playlist last week, and I've been really enjoying it. And I love myself. Yeah, remember the good old days of making mixed CDs? I do it all the time. It is one of the ways that I process my life, actually, is making playlists. So I've been making these playlists for like the last three or four years that like track. You can listen to these playlists and they tell the story of my journey of, of where you were, of understanding who I am and including coming to the realization that I'm an adult child. I love that. Um, mm -hmm. Next question. Carbohydrate bread what I, kind I, I actually can survive on bread alone what kind uh this morning i went to the grocery store at 6 30 and got a loaf of rosemary bread rosemary nice mm -hmm. um okay cheese a havarti havarti yeah. Just like a, what about like a nice havarti with dill Ooh, that does sound good yeah they're good <clears throat> my daughter put dill on our popcorn really yeah, she, she made it up and it's so good. Really? Uh-huh. Dill. Are we doing butter with that or are we just doing straight up dill? Uh, it depends if we make it at home, like pop it from kernels or if we have microwave. Usually microwave uh -huh. pop has butter on it. With dill. Okay. I'll have to try that. Folks, let me know. Uh, condiment. Um, mustard. What kind? Just yellow mustard. Okay. Yeah. Would you consider yourself to be an avoidant? A personality? What? Avoidant attacher, like attachment style. No, honey, I would. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Me too. I wish yeah. I was too. And that's, I, why I always, that's why I always end up with avoidant partners is because I wish I was like them. No kidding. Well, mustard is a very avoidant condiment answer, so that's why I asked. That's true. Yes. Um, okay. How'd you find out you were an adult child? The hard way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is there another way to find out, though? I'm not sure. Because no. it wasn't the kind of information I wanted to go out looking for. <laughs> and receive. <laughs> <laughs> and it certainly wasn't something that I wanted to admit about myself because I've been kind of raised in this family where there was just such a juxtaposition between the um, the persona of the family, the public persona of the family, and and the environment that was happening on the inside of the family. 
um, that to, to dare to admit that there was anything wrong with what was going on was to commit not only an act of treason, but almost like an act of uh, unaliving yourself. Mm. Um, and so it, it took me till very recently, I'm 42 years old, and it took me till very recently to finally be able to say that all of those memories that I have and the experiences that I have and the way that I carry so much stress in my body and the types of, that all of that's related back to that. But I, of course, wasn't able to really say that for a long time. And it's taken me a long time of adult life to build the courage to do it. Do you remember the first time that you heard the term? Probably the first time somebody told me about your podcast, actually. Do you, who was it? Who told you about it? Or how'd you find it? It's a good question. I did expect that one. And I've been thinking about it. I can't remember. Um, I think it was just a friend of mine, actually, who had stumbled upon it. Nice. So <clears throat> prior to finding the podcast, hearing the term, what was what was your perception of your upbringing? Well, I've been on this journey for about 15 years now of self-discovery. And it's, it's as the, the old onion uh, metaphor is pretty decent, right? I think that's why everybody uses it because it, it really does shed off in layers. And I'm finding that, you know, of course, it, what layers people are shedding off are different at different times. And the order of layers is quite different for certain people. So I've been at this journey for about 15 years now, and the adult child piece is one of the more recent ones that has sort of layered off and opened up uh, the next part of my story. Um, so I would say like early on in my adult life, I thought everything was fine. I just, I was, I was still very much a child, uh, not quite an adult child yet even, I would say. And that probably went all the way until my 30s. <laughs> Um, where I just continued to participate in the family dysfunction. And though it didn't feel good, and I rarely ever liked being inside of it, I pretended really well. And I knew what role I was supposed to play. And I was willing to sort of play it um, for the sake of, you know, peace of mind and peace of home, so to speak. Um, but I also moved away. I moved out here in to the Pacific Northwest, like, 15 years ago. So that was when things really started to change. When I moved out here, I was in my late 20s. And I got onto a different, entirely different cultural situation and different. Uh -huh. And um, that began to help me reflect. I went to a, I went to graduate school in Seattle. And, um, and is I that what is that what pushed the move with school? That's what justified it. Mm -hmm. I would, I would say what pushed it was that internal unconscious piece that is pushing us toward becoming who we're supposed to Meant be in yeah you know we have no idea it's at work most of the time mm -hmm. but i needed a justification that certainly mm -hmm. i wasn't just going to pack up and move uh, and so my justification at the time in my 20s was um was graduate school mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah but i went to a school that um was half and half like people studying theology and the other half people were studying counseling psychology and so it, it it did begin to open me up to some deeper questions about who I was in the world and um 
and what that meant and being able to relate it back to where I've come from and what I've experienced. Yeah. So before we get into your childhood, how would you describe your, how the disease of family dysfunction is presently impacting your life or led you to want to like join the community and seek more help in that arena? Like in what ways is that manifesting and showing up in your life in negative ways? Well, my dis my family dysfunction now is all internal because mm -hmm. I've been no contact with all of my family um, ever since just before um, coming out publicly as transgender a few years ago. Uh -huh. And uh, there's been a lot of loss as a result of that decision. Yeah. And one of, those, yeah. one of those things was realizing for myself that I could not be around my family anymore. Even if they would have let me be around them, it would have not have been mm. an environment that I would have wanted to be in anymore because I was being myself and that was unacceptable in a, in my family dysfunction, being mm -hmm. yourself completely unacceptable. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I still have family dysfunction. That's the crazy ass thing about it. I mean, I thought I was going to get away from, I tried to come to Seattle to get away from them. I've cut them off and on, off and on, off and on. Um, but that family dysfunction still lives in me because it's internal, right? Mm -hmm. And it was still started, it was still coming out in me in other relationships, particularly with intimate partners. Shocking. I just, I just kept doing <laughs> the same damn thing over and over again. And every time telling myself I wasn't. Um, and so I came to adult child uh, to the shit show. <laughs> what got me to the shit show was that uh, the end of a four year on and off again partnership uh that left me broken in a way that I'm like this is too goddamn familiar be this broken about it again <laughs> so um yeah that's what brought me there does is that a good answer that's the it's a perfect answer okay so let's talk about your childhood what paint the picture what what role did you play well I've played multiple roles I think I think as a child I was forced into a role of um helper mm -hmm and forced into a role of sort of um, parentification. So um, I was an only child for the first six years, oh, eight years of my life. I was an only child. And in that time, uh, my parents divorced when I was quite young. Um, their marriage was over before I came along, actually. And from the stories that I can get out of the, the grandparent generation, um, you know, it, having me even was one of those decisions that I think a lot of parents make, you know, especially adult children parents make. They're like, if we just take that next step of commitment, it'll yes, make everything else work better. Out. Mm -hmm. And so we make that next commitment to have a child and, and adult children, we, we find it difficult to keep going in those kinds of relationships typically. So my parents, you know, separated before they had me, got back together and had me and then were divorced again two years later. Um, and then my mother remarried when I was about five or six. And then she had um, my sister, uh, half sister when, uh, when I was eight. So it was chaotic. There were a lot of moves in that, but um, I think also I was born into an, an interesting sort of time period, right? Like um, my mother 
was going through what women of the early 1980s and white women in the early 1980s in America were going through. And uh, she was experiencing a lot of trauma and she passed it on. And it was physical abuse. It was verbal abuse. It was avoidance abuse. Um, it was a lot. And my father um, had his own traumas and he dealt with those by going inside and drinking and just sort of being very quiet all the time. Um, and I grew up in these two homes back and forth over and over again growing up. Yeah, it's hard for me to talk about. I get kind of disconnected from myself when I'm trying to talk about it, to be honest with you. I totally understand. So your dad, did he ever remarry or had you just have your half sister? Um, my father never remarried. Um, and he's played a really important role in my life. Uh, my mother um, remarried and had my half sister. And then another like five or six years later had my half brother. Mm -hmm. 13 years younger than I am. And then I moved out of that home completely when I was 14 and just lived with my father uh, for the rest of high school. And then when I got to college, I was like, like a lot of adult children, I was ready to be out on my own. Um, I couldn't wait. So I kind of got out on my own. What do you know about your parents' upbringings? That they were horrific, that they were horrific. And so horrific that both of my parents, I think, had legitimate claim when they said we're doing it better than our parents did us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, that's not, it, mine, mine was horrible. You know, like the, the you asked about my, my childhood, the stories that I have of my childhood that even my family tells is like the stories you tell are traumatic stories. Like yeah, the and way, they find them humorous. They do, or they or they find them um, as justification for their anger. Mm. Right. So, like, I my mother would tell this story when I was as a way to sort of be a dig at my father growing up telling the story of my father's temper and his anger and me being a young like toddler and you know were you are you old enough to have lived inside of a playpen is what they yes. call it <laughs> yes <laughs> so I'm in a playpen in the living room and my father's angry about something and he picks up those metal fire pokers from the fireplace and throws it across the room and it like narrowly sails above my head and then my mother says in the next breath, you know, you used to, you, I was so worried about you when you were an infant because you would just sit on the hardwood floors and bang your head on the floor over oh. and over and over again. Isn't that sad? It's heartbreaking. Or the, or the, or the one where um, my mother's youngest sister, who was a teenager in her own, was a child in her own right when I was a child, um, wanted me to stop crying when she was babysitting me. And so to get me to stop crying, she threw me into the dryer and shut the door. That's a funny one. That's a real funny one. I say all that not to be like, kind of like trauma dump or or to try to make it like comparison, but like just to say that that's the kind of stuff that by the time I was in my twenties, I had so normalized mm. mm -hmm. that I didn't even think about it anymore. In fact, I repressed all of the memories. When you talk about this being 15-year journey of really discovering who you are and healing, 
Was there a pivotal moment that ignited all of that? You obviously were studying psychology. Yeah, I did. I guess that helped. Well, no, but I mean, it's so common that like, you know, isn't it that we want to heal and be of service to others when like we really need the healing ourselves. Well, and we live in a culture where the, the, the main question we have to ask is not what's going to heal us, but what kind of job can we get to survive? Mm-hmm. And so for those of us that are caretakers, it's no wonder, you know, we want to take care because we, we want to believe it's possible to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. I look at it for myself. Uh, and, and so I know I have that orientation to life. And so I'm forced down a, a certain number of equally objectifying and oppressive paths for career choices. And, and, and oftentimes we can get lost in those places, right? Like we never kind of get to the actual healing part. We just put a lot of stuff in our head and, and, um, but I'm, I'm thankful for the stuff that graduate school put in my head. It's just that I think the real healing journey started for me when I recognized for myself who I was as a trans woman. And I was able to say that to myself and not let the fear that that automatically brought inside of my body because of how I was raised to be so afraid of myself um, that I could say yes to it, even though I was very afraid and still Mm -hmm. many days, very afraid Mm -hmm. to be Mm -hmm. myself. Um, But when I decided to do that, I knew I really wanted to do it and I had to heal to do it. I didn't have a choice anymore. the only way for me to be authentic in the world is for me to do this healing work. And this is the result of the healing work is me. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm the result of the healing work, not a better job or any of that, but like who I am in the world. Um, so that's what's really kickstarted it. It's like put my healing journey on speed, so to speak. Probably because it's felt so life or death. Mm. Yes. And I think it has to often for us to have the motivation to, to do so. So like you said, it is so fucking scary. (laughs) It really is. Yeah, it really is. And I think it's scary for everybody. I don't, I don't necessarily, it's, it's scary for certain groups of people because we do it to a certain extent that we become the scapegoats for the larger culture. And I have definitely played that role in the later part of my life. So what have been some realizations about yourself as far as the limiting beliefs that you've been carrying out and exuding to the world as far as things that were ingrained during childhood? The the most insidious of them all to me is the limiting belief that we that I don't possess a God-given talent Mm. for my heart to express itself in whatever way it wishes and that's that's the most insidious trauma not the beatings not the being thrown into the dryers not not any of that the most insidious trauma was the way that I internalized their own belief that you can't be yourself and survive you, you have to, that the cost of entry is self-betrayal. Mm. And um, to me, that's a, that's a very um, anti-life point of view. Um, 
What about being a parent? How has that opened up your eyes and, and aided in your own healing? My God, being a parent's the worst. <laughs> and I mean that in the most loving way because I absolutely adore my child. And being a parent as an adult child myself is terrifying. How old is she? She's 10. 10. Yeah. She's great. She's been the one who has helped me to be the mirror because I began to see ways in which I was acting and, and I would watch her and begin to notice, oh, she's acting in ways that feel familiar to me. And I, oh my God, it, I've got some responsibility in that as her parent. Um, so that's been a big part of my healing journey is learning to be present to what the responsibility of having a child is, but also the gift of having a child for me is, um, is having access to that childlike wonder again that when you're looking for it, you can easily tell when it's been turned off inside of a child. And that's for me become a, a good way to test for myself within myself um, how I'm doing. Have there, been, have there been certain triggers or memories that have come up at like in particular circumstances or particular ages that she's experienced that mirror your, your experience? Totally. Yeah. I've really started to notice this in the last few years with her. And um, I would say the worst abuse of my childhood happened between about the ages of seven and 14. Okay. Um, and so a few years ago was when my child turned seven and when she got to be that age, I remember breaking down one day, I was watching her and admiring her. And I just remember thinking, this is what I must have looked like at the age when my mother started physically abusing me. Mm -hmm. how on earth someone lose themselves to the extent that they would abuse <laughs> some someone as precious and a being as delightful as a child. Mm -hmm. But with that thought also came the thought of like, but for the grace of God, <laughs> would I go myself sort of like, um, I got to do the work. I got to start doing this work. What have conversations look like with her? With my kid? Mm -hmm. What kind of conversations? Well, I don't know. Have, have there been opportunities for you to share about mm, the healing work that you're doing? Or what about in moments where you feel like you've like fallen short in the ability to like own up to that? Because I think that that's one thing that's so amazing and beautiful what I hear from people in the community that have kids is just these opportunities for correction do we have time for a little story go for it um one of the one of the big moments that I can like remember in in this part of um my in introspection and really looking at myself as a parent and what that means for me it was four three or four years ago and um, my child needed some help with, uh, with some homework after school. 
And so they got out their homework and we started looking at it. And I immediately became frustrated that they weren't doing it right. Doing it right in air quotes. And the more frustrated I got, the more exasperated she became. And the more exasperated she became, the angrier I got. And the angrier I got, the more dissociative she got to the point where then she yelled at me and went into her room and slammed her door as hard as she could. And I was angry. So I walked to the kitchen and washed some dishes or do something like that. And I was in the midst of like formulating and justifying my anger in my head when it hit me, what had just happened and the kind of parent I had just been and the kind of reaction that I saw in her of shutting down and bursting with anger and then believing that the only place that she could go to find comfort was to get away from me. And that felt real familiar. So I just sat there and cried in the kitchen. For like a good 20 minutes, I just sat there and cried in the kitchen on the floor in front of the stove until I was able to pick myself up and go back into her, tap on her door and be invited into her room. And we just sat there and we, I apologized. And we were able to kind of like come to a place where we both were able to emote with one another. And that started us on a, a healing path, I think, that experience in many ways. Um, we're able to get to that a lot quicker now. It, it's, but doesn't mean we, I'm an adult child. <laughs> so I have my moments and she's the child of an adult child. And so she has hers and we try to be kind with that. What is she? Is she in fourth grade? Third grade? She's in fourth grade. She's like quirky little theater kid. That's a precious age. Like video games too. I got her a Nintendo Switch for Christmas this year. Nice. Yeah. Mm. I remember when I got my first, I got a game. I remember when I got a Game Boy Color. That was a shit. Um, so where is the focus now? Like what, what, what is driving you as far as what do you feel like you're working towards from a healing perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's a couple of things for me. One Finding Adult Child Podcast, finally getting in relationship with a shit show, kind of opened me up to the whole world of ACA, mm-hmm. uh, which I had never even really heard of before, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest with you. And so I've been going to meetings. Um, in per- I, uh, have you checked out in-person meetings there? I go to online meetings with a, with a sort of international group uh, called Hella Gay ACA. Okay. That's and, cool. Um, yeah. And it's a, a lovely group of LGBTQIA folk, uh, queer identifying folk who are um, adult children. And then this year I've joined, um, I've joined up with a group and we're working through the yellow book together. Nice. So that's a big, that's a big focus. And then from a personal standpoint, um, I'm looking to try to do more like DBT work actually. and. Mm-hmm. and get into some of the sort of executive functioning and and how to really be in touch with regulation. Pete Walker says the first step is you have to learn to regulate. And I'm not sure I'm that great at that. Um, So I'm wanting to dig into that a bit deeper. Um, Yeah. And then what about from, I mean, you're an amazing poet, writer. Oh, thank you. 
what what really jazzes you there like where do you want to take that is that something that you hope that you can like switch into like be more of a career perspective like a career focus um I struggle with my art being career focused because I struggle with the thought of um commodifying inspiration is something that I struggle with um wrapping my head around but I wouldn't mind being discovered so I write a lot <laughs> I write a lot and I share it a lot in spaces where I feel safe to share it um and that's new I mean I, my cat is going nuts I've become a consistent writer and that feels really great. And so I do think the next step in my writing is just to kind of maintain consistency and keep putting it out there more and more for others maybe, to see. Maybe you could pick something because, I mean, you've read stuff in group. Like maybe if you want sometime before Saturday, if you want to find something that you really feel jazzed about, or I don't know if you, if you have anything in front of you, that's fine. But you could also just send me a recording of it. Okay. And here is a poem that I've been working on for the last couple of weeks. It's called um, Tears Thicken. Tears Thicken. Unattainable perfection latches on like a black shadow pulling from below a glossy surface on its mirrored image, wiped clean and searching anxiously above for recognition or at least a connection that doesn't disappear at the slightest disturbance. Happy memories deflate and burn, standing still inside a chain of reactions, nuclear heat diffusing at the speed of light, scorching what thin protection remains between these enriched fantasies and their constant demise. Critical fear disguises itself as fatal sophistry, killing myself to keep faith in inherent goodness alive, violating necessary boundaries to prove my devotion to perfect love in an imperfect dimension and carrying bottomless self-effacing wounds, the embodied proof of a living queer identity. Intuitive responses materialize as adjustments judged maladjusted. Self-betrayal demanded as a precondition for existence by artificial authorities armed to the teeth with artificial intelligence, acting as malevolent gods on a dying planet where each loss unearthed returns a new awareness of our codependence. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Mm, I got a couple more questions for you. Okay. Three things that you like about yourself. Um, I love my sense of style. Um, I love my Southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I love that I'm frugal, but I really like nice things. Nice things. <laughs> Okay. Hope or dream for the future. I hope we can all wake up around the same time mm. and do something about it. Mm. Well, this has been amazing. And I love having you in the community. You add such a, a special sparkle and
Just make you slow now. Don't let them go. 